tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. We have interesting readings, but, well, they're always interesting because it's the Bible. Speaking of that, let's pray and get to it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right. Let us do it. Let us open the big book on the coffee table. And once again, we have a very, very abbreviated... uh, um, section of scripture. And I'm always telling you, you're allowed to read the whole chapter. In fact, as you're encouraged to do so, and you go to the USCCB site, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops site, and you click on the the uh, scripture citation, you see reading one, and there's a line, and you just go over to this right side of that, that uh, column. And there you will see in today's reading, we have GN, which stands for Genesis, 37, which stands for the 37th chapter, a colon, and then we have 3 to 4, and then comma, 12 to 13, and comma, 17 to 28. That means that verse 4 to 12 is left out, and verse 13 to 17 are mostly left out. It's not because we don't want you to read them. It's because we're trying to get in as much scripture as we can. It's a buffet of but, passages. Yes, a buffet of passages, my voice in my head says. But what you can do is click on that, and it will bring you to the whole chapter. So Jacob settled in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. This is when he <clears throat> comes back from his time spent in the northern Tigris Euphrates Valley with his uncle Laban, and uh, he is uh, coming back. His brother Esau said, I'm going to kill him. And well, they're reconciled, so Jacob comes into that land and, and settles. And um, this is the story of the family of Jacob, and it starts with Joseph. Joseph was 17 years old, he was tending the flocks with his brothers, he was an assistant to the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And Joseph brought their father bad reports about them. (laughs) This is the little brother who's a snitch. 
So Israel loved Joseph best of all his sons, for he was the child of his old age, and he'd made him a long ornamented tunic. Um, he was also the the wife, the son of his favorite wife, uh, Rachel. So, uh, you know, he had uh, two wives and two concubines. And, well, that means we can have lots of wives. No, we can't. It didn't work out very well for Abraham or uh, his son, uh, Isaac, or for uh, his grandson, Jacob. So, well, this is the story of these brothers. And Joseph was a—what's the proper term? He was a pain in the neck, how shall we say, Joseph had a dream about, well, this is one of his dreams. We were binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose to an upright position, and all of your sheaves, all the brothers and his mother and father, formed a ring around my sheaf and bowed down to it. He's always having these these dreams about how his brothers will bow down to him. And then in verse 11 of the chapter, we read, his brothers were furious at him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So he sent out to uh, um, uh, um, bring word to his his brothers who are tending the flocks at Shechem, and they see him coming, and um, they say, let's kill him. <laughs> I mean, these are all sons of Jacob, but they're sons of Jacob by four different women. And they do not like this odd brother who's always ratting them out and, and thinks he's better than they are. He's the, the son of, of, he's the favorite son, and he's the son of the favorite wife, the only son at the time. Well, then, then there was a second one, and Rachel died in childbirth. Uh, so, you know, Israel just preferred his sons. Uh, so they, they kill him. But Reuben... The eldest tried to save him from their hands. We must not take his life. And so let's throw him into a cistern, an abandoned cistern in the wilderness. And he was going to come and save him later. Well, they threw him in the cistern and they took his coat, the coat that his father had given him, which will be the word of the day. And they they killed an animal and, and soaked the coat in, in the animal's blood. And they were going to say, well... Uh, he was killed by—we found his coat. He must have been killed by animals in the desert. Well, he's in this pit, and Reuben's going to come and rescue him. And then uh, 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 Judah says to his brothers, what's to be gained by killing our brother, concealing his blood? There's some Ishmaelites who were relatives of these people. They were the sons of Ishmael, who was the son of Abraham. And— they were essentially desert Bedouin, and a caravan of Ishmaelites is passed by. Let's, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, uh, and then we won't be guilty of his blood. Um, Midianite traders passed by. They pulled Joseph out of the cistern, and they sold uh, the Midianites. It seems that Midianite and Ishmaelite here are interchangeable. <clears throat> Reuben went back to the cistern, and he saw that Joseph wasn't in it. In it. Uh, so they go back and they tell Jacob, your beloved son is dead. Here's the coat you gave him. It's covered with blood. So these Midianites, meanwhile, sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh and his chief steward. That's the story. This has been called, the whole story of Joseph has been called one of the great short stories of ancient literature, and it really is. But 
my thinking about it uh, is that uh, – if I can find my cursor here. My thinking about it is that it is such wonderful testimony to the historicity, to the literal truth of Scripture. Let us look at our founding myths. George Washington never told a lie. George Washington was incredibly strong. He could throw a silver dollar across uh, across a river. George Washington was wonderful. George Washington was one of the biggest slave owners in the of his time, one of the richest men of his time, and he also had one of the largest liquor distilleries of his time. You don't hear those things about George Washington. We like, you know, when you have a founding myth, a myth about the founders of your nation, well, the founders of your nation were perfect. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible portrays these men as they were. The founders of the nation of Israel were horrible people. They were just awful. I mean, uh, Levi was chosen to be the priestly tribe, uh, and Judah, the kingly tribe, they weren't the eldest. Uh, Simeon and and Reuben were the eldest. Well, Reuben had a fling with one of his father's uh, uh, concubines, and and Simeon uh, killed a whole city full of people by lying to them about about uh, uh, about circumcision. He got them all to be circumcised so they could enter into covenant and marry the sons of the daughters of Israel. And then when they were recovering from the circumcision, he killed them all. And there are other things that Simeon did. He was particularly hard on his brother uh, Joseph. This is history as it was received. Now, it might not be literally word for word, but this is what was received and handed down. The Bible, and the same is true of the New Testament. The disciples, you see them as they are, rather flawed people. None of these are polished up. And this is unique, and I think it's unique because the the authors of the books of Scripture were most interested in history. Well, let us go to another verse in Holy Scripture, uh, in the Gospel. Uh, the Gospel is, um, yesterday we saw Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and I maintain that was a joke. He was telling a funny story. Today's parable is not a funny story. He's addressing it to the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests were all Sadducees, and many of the elders would have been from that group. Elders were elected and orda- or chosen, rather, and ordained. Chief priests were not ordained. They were, you were a priest, uh, a chief sacrificer, because, or a sacrificer, because uh, um, you were descended from Zadok or from, from Aaron, ultimately. And this is kind of interesting. I've heard people say, well, clearly this is uh, not biblical or not uh, is evidences that Matthew couldn't have known much about Israel because uh, there was only one chief priest at a time, not at the time of Christ. The government would appoint you chief priest and then retire you after a little while. I, I mentioned that yesterday. So there was a whole bunch of chief priests, of high priests. So... He tells this story about about these vicious uh, renters who kill uh, um, uh, the, the the representative, the owners, um, and they ultimately kill 
the son of the owner. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we'll acquire his inheritance. Um, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? They, they answered, he will put those wretches to a wretched death and lease the vineyard to other tenants. We'll give him his produce at the proper times. Then Jesus uh, hits, hits him hard. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. He's quoting scripture to tell them that um, uh, their time is up. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you uh, and given to a people that will produce its fruit. Now, that's interesting. Uh, the kingdom of God, this is the royal inheritance. Again, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable. They knew he was speaking about them. So the Pharisees thought that they were in charge. So both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were offended by this, not just the Sadducees, though he was addressing himself, I think, primarily this to the Sadducees. So, that said, let us look at the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. This is quoted quite a number of times in the Holy Scriptures. I think it's uh, three times. We read it in Peter, we read it in the Gospels, and we read it in the Psalm once it is taken. This is literally true. When you go to Jerusalem and you go to uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is really good archaeology, it is most probably uh, the site where Jesus was crucified and buried. Um, it's good archaeology. Certainly Constantine believed it was the site, and Constantine even told it was the site by the Bishop of Jerusalem. So it's, it's, it's good archaeology. But when you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, unless you have really studied it before you go, you will not know what you are looking at, because Constantine was, well, he didn't have our sense of, of, uh, of history. Uh, we love to preserve the actual site, you know. The, this is what it really looked like at the time. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to embellish it. And Constantine, when he um, went to the, this, the Roman city of Aelia Capitolina, which had been built over the uh, site of Jerusalem, he asked the bishop if they knew where the, the, the tomb of Christ was in Calvary. The bishop said, I know exactly where it is. And he took them into the central plaza and pointed at a temple to Aphrodite and a statue of Zeus. And he said, you dig there, you'll find the tomb. We've always known it's there. Uh, this is, this is uh, a thing that was never forgotten by the Christians of Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians had all been expelled, but the Greeks had been able to stay, and they they kept that memory alive. So they dug, and they found the tomb, and they found uh, the Rock of Calvary. And what they did was, what Constantine did was shaved everything away, leveled the area, except for the Rock of Calvary and the, the, the cube of earth, which was the, the cube of stone, in which was the burial cave in which Jesus had been buried. Uh, there's a fascinating program uh, by National Geographic uh, that uh, when the tomb was falling apart because of earthquakes in Jerusalem, it had to be um, strengthened. And so what they did was they did an entire archaeological project on it. And people thought that uh, that a very anti-Christian group uh, led by Khalif Hakim of Egypt <clears throat> around the year 1000 uh, had completely destroyed the, the tomb of Christ, what was left of it, uh, which is one of the reasons the crusade started was because this this Caliph Hakim uh, uh, 
had destroyed all the churches of the Holy Land and prohibited pilgrimage and uh, that sort of thing. So they they that was one of the reasons for the Crusades. Well, the tomb is still there. They took off all of the outer marble casing and all that. It's still there. And the burial bed on which Christ was laid, when they put instruments on it, electronic instruments, they all went haywire. I mean, it's a fascinating program by National Geographic the, the, about the Holy Sepulchre. It's easy to find on the web. So uh, that said, um, back to Calvary. Uh, the Rock of Calvary is encased in a kind of structure on top of which is a chapel. But there is something called the Chapel of Adam. If you go down into it, right underneath the Chapel of the Crucifixion, you'll see the actual Rock of Calvary. And you can see the actual Rock of Calvary now up in the chapel. They put plexiglass on it, so you can actually see the Rock of Calvary. But you go down into this chapel. Nobody ever goes into this chapel. It's a great place to sit quietly and pray. You will see a rock, and there's a crack through it. Calvary was not a hill. It was a quarry. And stone for the temple was quarried from it for the rebuilding of the, of the temple after the return from exile in Babylon. And they came to a clump of rock that was too soft to be used for building purposes. It had a crack right down the middle. They quarried around it. Calvary was a stone that the builders of the second temple rejected. It has become a cornerstone. By the Lord has this been done. It's wonderful in our eyes. That verse is repeated three times in the scriptures. And... It is amazing to me that Calvary is literally a stone that the builders rejected, and it's become the cornerstone of the new temple, the temple not made with hands, the temple which is the church. You know, Scripture scripture doesn't lie. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected, this is, became Calvary. And, and you, can, you can see it to this day, a crack right down the middle. So I think that's fascinating, that you can trust the Scriptures— that the 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 stories of the patriarchs paint them as they were the stories of Christ's disciples paint them as they were and the prophecies of scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone is quite literally true when jesus said for instance thou art peter upon this rock i will build my church where the pope sits in st peter's go down about 15 20 feet and there is the bones of st peter so, you know, the Bible doesn't lie. That said, let's go to a break. We'll come back with uh, some letters. And uh, the phones are open. You can call in at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. The Bible is quite a book. Well, it's quite a library. What I thought I knew Far, far away Someone was weeping. Battling addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at relevantradio.com slash Gregory. That's relevantradio.com slash Gregory. Talking about Jesus. Talking about Him. Well, that's what we're trying to do, talking about Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, and it's become the cornerstone. 
Let's go to, uh, where are we going now? We're going to, to letters, aren't we? Yes, letters. Oh, boy. Where did I put the, well, first find the cursor? It's an appropriate name for it. It really is. Where did I put Good that? Good grief. Good grief. I had it here. Oh, dear. Okay. The inbox. Click on inbox. See, I know what I'm doing, sort of. All right. This is a question from a listener. Um, except I, oh, I have to click on that now. Okay. Did God have to kill an animal to cover up the skin of Adam regarding the question of his first bloodshed? Um, we're, we're talking about the covenants. The covenants are uh, uh, ratified in blood. This is a, a important deal. In the Psalms we read, Summon to me the people who make covenant with me by sacrifice. And the word sacrifice there, it means a blood sacrifice. Zabah. And yeah, apparently, I don't know how you get the skin off an animal without killing it. Since there were no trucks, there was no roadkill. So uh, I think, yes, that, yeah. So I I hope that answers your question. But uh, I have a feeling there's more to the question. If you want to write again and ask, I'd be happy to to kibitz. Okay. And again, did I mention the the... The phones are open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Okay. Um, this is a letter or, or a question from James from Iowa. Can a non-ordained minister sing the exultant? First of all, what is the exultant? It is the Easter proclamation. Rejoice, O heavenly powers, sing choirs of angels. Rejoice, all creation around God's throne. Jesus Christ, our light, is risen. That's the exalted. It's the Easter song, and it's very beautiful. And there's a short version and a long version. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, like, yes, a non-ordained minister can sing it because frequently we ordained ministers sound like frogs when we try to sing. So, you know, my motto, food and music should not hurt. That, yes, uh, sometimes it will be sung by a member of the choir or someone who actually has a voice. It should be sung by the celebrant. It can be sung by a deacon, I believe, but in cases of need. <laughs> and that's one of them. <clears throat> It can be sung by a non-ordained minister, to the best of my knowledge. Now, if I'm wrong, again, I would like someone to correct me. But I think that that is true. All right, here we go. Here is a question from a liter uh, from. Here is a question from a listener. This is Janice from Tampa. A Protestant friend doesn't understand why we don't eat meat on Fridays. What should I tell her? That for us, every Friday is Good Friday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday, whether throughout the year. We don't fast traditionally on Sunday, and we do have some form of fasting. Uh, it can be a very simple one, such as not eating meat. And on Fridays, we're expected, we're required not to eat meat. Well, people say, is it a, a mortal sin? Well, the mortal sin, I'm not so sure, is eating the meat. It's the absolute disregard for the unity and, and the fellowship of the church, that if I'm so arrogant that I think, well, the rules uh, don't apply to me. Well, they're just human rules. They don't apply to me. Why don't they? Really, why, why, why not? Why are you above, above the rules? And it's that arrogance that, that uh, 
denotes a, a serious spiritual condition. But the reason that we practice, practice penance on Fridays the whole year long is because Friday, every Friday for us is Good Friday. We are so grateful for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And every Sunday is Easter. We are so grateful for the resurrection. So I hope that will answer your friend's question. Janice, okay, let me click more buttons. And uh, ah, here's one. This is um, a kind of involved letter. It may take a little while, but um, let's see here. This is from, uh, does she want to be uh, anonymous? I don't think so. This is from Leslie. Um, I read four Catholic books about Mary. Each of them I read twice. I finally decided to trust the church. Well, uh, when when my husband and I swam the Tiber, that's a great phrase. It means to become a Catholic. Uh, when they swam the Tiber, because, of course, the, the Vatican is on the Tiber. In 2011, at the age of 61, we'd been Lutherans. I had the same conflict, which is about the Blessed Mother. Before I entered the church, I read four Catholic books about Mary. Each of them I read twice. I finally decided to trust the church. I spoke to my pastor and confirmation sponsor, read and meditate. Here are some of the things that opened my eyes. When Protestants pray, they really mean worship, and they don't get it. I, you know, I have a, a twist on that, that, that um, praise and worship are two different things. You go to a good, charismatic, uh, uh, non-denominational church, and they have what they call praise music, and everybody's having a wonderful time their hands raised, singing these rather sentimental songs that are really nice, and they call it praise, praise and worship. As far as Catholics are concerned, it's just praise. I can praise you. I can praise my four-year-old for getting good grades in preschool. I can praise uh, anybody, anything. Not a problem. To praise Mary is not a problem. Worship, that's different. We reserve worship for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But for us, worship is the mass, that nothing is worthy enough to, to be used for the worship of God. All my songs are not worthy enough to worship God. I'm not worshiping God when I sing. I may be praising him, but that's not worship. The only thing is the body, blood, soul, and divinity. I offer you the body and blood, soul, and divinity of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. That's the only way to worship. So when we worship, we mean the Eucharist. Uh, we offer the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus to the Father, and that is what we mean by worship. We don't offer the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus to the Blessed Mother or the saints. Uh, so I, I think that that kind of is what you're hinting about, uh, um, that... that um, I, I would put it a little differently. Well, then the saints are not dead, really. Catholics embrace the communion of saints completely. I really think that the major difference between certain varieties of Protestantism and Catholicism is the communion of saints. It isn't the Pope. It isn't, it isn't Mary, except insofar as she is a member of the communion of saints. You see, we take very seriously the verse in Scripture that says, in the Gospel of John, that says, what I have done and greater still will you do, that, that God really wants to adopt us, and he wants us to genuinely be his sons and daughters. 
and to do what Jesus did. Uh, not apart from him, but with him and through him and in him. We worship God with, through, and in Jesus, and we act in the world in the ministry of Jesus. So we are really authentically the sons and daughters of God. Thus, uh, uh, the communion of saints is a very real salvific body that they participate, as you and I do, in the salvation of the world. The persons who led me to Christ, my parents primarily, and the people who, and the parish priests of my parish and, and some of the nuns of my parish, uh, they, they brought me to Christ. And then when I was falling away from the Lord, people in the, in the old Pentecostal movement renewed my, helped me renew my commitment to Christ. Um, those people after Christ were my saviors. How dare you say that? Just Jesus only. Well, where does it say Jesus only in the Bible? He wanted us to love one another and to collaborate with one another and to collaborate with him in the work of salvation. So the communion of saints is a very important thing. Um, again, Mary was sinless, so was Eve in the beginning. I always mention that our Blessed Mother was the third person in history immaculately conceived. Adam and Eve conceived, albeit in the mind of God, they were conceived without the effects of original sin. And we, when we, you know, the word pray simply means ask. Uh, so we're asking the saints to join us in prayer, as you point out. Um, and lastly, as uh, Leslie says, if we don't talk with someone, we cannot get to know them. To know Mary, talk with her. You know, it is funny. I was so, uh, again, I've said this, and it's true that the devotion to the Blessed Mother was discouraged in the seminary of the late 60s and the 70s and even the 80s. And uh, that has changed, thank God. And, and I have found in my old age a real affection for and devotion to the Blessed Mother. Because if the church is an institution, doesn't need a mother. If the church is a family, well, that's different. Families have mothers in order to function well. So, there, and she says, Father, I'm your age. Please stop saying you're old. Well, you may not be old, but believe me, I am older by the day, Leslie. God bless, and thanks for the letter. That said, we are going to take a break. We will come back with a word of the day, which will be uniquely disappointing, I'm afraid. Um, we'll do our best. 888-914-888-914-9149. Do call in and try to stump the Reverend Know-It-All. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. Solidarity forever. song about John Paul the Great. It's a song about union organizing in the 19th century. Oh, things have changed since 1892. Where was? Let's move along. Yes, let me let me back away from things controversial here. All right, let's go to the word of the day. 
I have no idea where that song came from, but, well, that's all right. You have heard of Joseph in his coat of many colors. Well, if you saw in the reading today, uh, it didn't talk about Joseph in the coat of many colors. It talked about, uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. Uh, Israel loved Joseph best of all his sons, for he was the child of his old age, and he'd made him a long tunic. What? I thought it was a coat of many colors. Well, it's interesting because the Hebrew word for the coat of many colors is the, what is it? It's, I think it's called the, the, uh, uh, the ketonet, uh, pasim, uh, and they don't know quite what that means. It, it's was certainly an expensive garment. Uh, it was it was a coat that probably went down to the ankles and the wrists, and that would have been unusual. It certainly would have been a coat of many colors. Probably, um, we don't we're, we just don't appreciate the meaning of cloth in the Bible. Believe it or not, it's a big deal when they when they cast lots for Jesus' garments, uh, when the Pharaoh gives garments to the sons of Jacob. And and when the Bible says if you if you take a man's cloak in in uh, as as a sort of surety against his debts, give it back to him at night because it's also his blanket. Cloth was handmade, and we we just take cloth for granted. Cloth was very precious; even rags were precious in the ancient world, and so. This would have been a royal garment, a garment with extra cloth in it, thus very expensive. Uh, and it, you know, it, nobody quite knows, believe it or not, what the Katonet Pasim means. That word Pasim means uh, it's translated in the in the uh, uh, in the Greek Septuagint as poikilis, which means variegated, implying many different colors. So, I. Say that again, what? Made his brothers jealous, whatever, whatever it was. Whatever it was, it made his brothers jealous. It was a really nice coat, and I suspect it was a coat of many colors. So if you're stuck on the coat of many colors, you can be stuck on it. All right, that said, see, I told you it was going to be kind of a useless uh, and uninspiring word of the day. Let's go to phones. You know, I'd be lost without a telephone. Hey, don't go away. I want to talk to you. Let's go to Chris from the Central Valley of California. Chris, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. I was hoping you could explain or go into heroic virtue and if we're called to heroic virtue as Catholics. Well, we're called to virtue. Heroic virtue, gosh, that's a tough question. Heroic virtue is virtue that is it's above and beyond that which is necessary. For instance, um, there was a priest here who uh, uh, donated his much of his liver to somebody in a local parish uh, who was not a friend of his or not a relative of his. It just he did it. So uh, heroic virtue is the pers- perfor- it's defined in the, uh, as the performance of extraordinary virtuous actions with readiness and over a period of time. Moral virtues are exercised, well, with ease. Uh, um, I don't know about with ease in this day and age, but we're called to virtue. And the word virtue itself comes from the word man, believe it or not, vir in Latin. Uh, but it, it, virtus 
in, in Latin actually meant uh, masculine strength, but it came to mean moral strength. And so virtue is, is moral strength, and we all need to have uh, moral strength. Uh, but then there's exceptional moral strength in which I, I, I give more than I'm required to give. Uh, that priest was not required to give a large piece of his liver to a parishioner, but he did. Um, and it, it was a real strengthener, for a real morale booster for a lot of other priests. It had quite an effect. So that was extraordinary virtue. You don't have to give your liver to a stranger. You don't have to give your liver to anybody. You need it, uh, and you're not required to do that. That would have been heroic virtue. So that does now. There was a second part of your question. Uh, did that answer part of your question? It did. My second part was: Are we called to heroic virtue? Are certain people called to heroic virtue? Like Mother Teresa, what she did would be heroic. Then, yeah, Mother Teresa exercised heroic virtue. Um, and yeah, I think some sometimes God calls you to heroic virtue. And um, how do you know God's calling you to heroic virtue? And God's calling you to something. He doesn't let up. <laughs> That's been my experience, that, that the Scripture says every word is confirmed by two or three witnesses. God, if God wants something from you, he won't, he won't let you escape from it. He keeps asking for it. There comes a point when he stops asking because you consistently refuse. But um, exceptional virtue, I think, is... Uh, called out in people by an exception, an exceptional sense of the calling. Does that answer that question? I think so. Yeah. Well, you know, like the priesthood, I've known guys who, who uh, didn't want to be priests, but they couldn't escape from it. It just kept calling. And, uh, and they eventually said, okay, Lord, I'm here. So I hope that answers your question, Chris. God bless. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's go to Anthony from Santa Ana. Hey, uh, Father, how you doing? Good. I have a, uh, uh, I have a book that you uh, that I read many years ago, maybe about I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I read a book. It's by it's a first person narrative on the conquest of Mexico. The book is called uh, either called the conquest of Mexico or the conquest of New Spain. It's written by Bernal Diaz, a Bernal uh, Diaz, yes, a Spanish. Yeah, Bernal Diaz was a uh, was a major conquistador. He 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 was firsthand on on some of the expeditions of of Mexico. Uh, one from Cordoba in 1517, Grijalva in 1518, and of course uh, Hernando Cortez's uh, expedition yeah. that took place in in Mexico in 1518. I mean in 1519. But it gives an account of what actually happened and how the Aztecs and some of the, the neighboring tribes were at war with one another, how they were sacrificing yeah. one another. And this was, uh, it's just vile, some of the things that you, sure. you, you, would, you would have read. So I know that a lot of people like to romanticize the period, but it really was not a, a romantic period of, of time for those people. All. It might be for us today, but for those people, it was not romantic. You Absolutely. know, being marched up a a pyramid and having children uh, slayed to the to the god Lalok and all these Lalok, yeah. different gods that they have. So they, they you know, the they, people might might romanticize these things, but in reality, uh, you know, the Lord and of course Mama Mary, Ave Maria, she 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 um, you know she she rescued them from, them yeah. from all that, and that's why they converted yeah. in droves. Yeah, in droves, yeah. You know, 
Exactly. You know, the, the, the Aztecs, the, 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 the Nahuatl people, uh, they, they were sitting on their throne very delicately because uh, Cortes himself couldn't have done it, but, but people rose up. They were tired of being their, their sons and daughters being sacrificed on the altars of Tenochtitlan, now Mexico City. So the Mexica were just were, were brutal. But then along comes this religion which says, you don't have to sacrifice your children for God. God sacrificed his son for you, and it was powerful. And, you know, I'm trying to think, why can't I think of his name? Not It was not, oh, gosh, he was uh, a Dominican from... Uh, Sahagun. Sahagun. Sahagun, yes. And, oh, yes, no, it was in Santo Domingo. And, and, and he, there was this great debate, uh, which sounds awful to us, uh, uh, in Spain, in Salamanca, were, were the indigenous people of the Americas human? And the church said, yes, they're human, and thus they have human rights. So uh, what's the name of the book that you're mentioning? The, the, the book is called uh, The Conquest of Mexico, or it might be, be called The Conquest of, of New Spain, Spain by Bernal Diaz. Very interesting book. Yeah. And the book that was mentioned to us yesterday about uh, uh, right. was, was uh, Journey to the Sun, uh, 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 the story of uh, Junipero Serra, Juniper Serra. Uh, right, um, right. And... and both books worth reading. Well, thank you. And, and you know, that's hey, just... One, one, sure. One more, interest, one more interesting thing that, that I, I thought it was interesting always when I read that book was the fact that only it only took 300 men on that conquest, on that voyage, to basically destroy a whole kingdom yeah. of people. And, 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 it, and, it, and it reminds me of what Abraham did when he marched into... Uh, uh, when, when he marched into, uh, into the Holy Land. Yeah. How he, how, with 300 soldiers himself had about the same amount of men to conquest and yeah. take over the Holy Land. You know, it just, it just amazes me, the parallels. Yeah, it is, it is fascinating. It is, it is uh, the, the, the conquistadores themselves, uh, they said um, uh, that, that it was like the tales of the old, uh, the old epics, but it was real. Uh, Tenochtitlan, now Mexico City, was one of the largest cities in the world. It, it was a brutal, terrible time, and and much, much. There was much evil on both sides, uh, but as you say, the Blessed Mother kind of rescued and and created uh, this new people. Mexican people are 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 quite literally sons and daughters of the Blessed Mother because she created that that culture by bringing together these enemies, uh, the conquistadores and the indigenous people. She brought them together in the faith, and Mexico is unique that way. And it's very sad to me now that Mexico is undergoing a difficult period because it's one of the great nations of the world. Well, thanks for calling in, and uh, uh, thanks for the info. God bless. Let's go to Diane from Chicago. Hi, Father. Hi. Uh, my question is, when did the practice of abstaining from meat on Fridays first begin in the church? How far does that go back? Oh, it, it goes back to the earliest days. The idea of Lent, we talked about this the other day. St. Augustine certainly talked about Lenten. People were talking about that kind of thing by 200 A.D. But it really does come from the Jewish idea of fasting, uh, that, that so much of what we have in the church really we do get from Jews. So it really goes back to the very earliest days. Um, Oh, we, the the disciples, we read in the scripture about Paul fasting and that sort of thing. So it was an abstention from all food. And the idea of abstaining from meat, 
uh, um, really caught on very early. Uh, so by 200, it was pretty well established. So does that answer the question? Perfect. Thank you, Father. God uh, bless you. God bless. Thanks. Let's go now to Catherine from New York. Catherine, what can I do for you? Hi, I have a son in his late teens yes. who lost his faith and hasn't attended Mass for several years now. Yeah. And he has complained because he has trouble falling asleep. So he finally asked me for a Bible because he thinks it'll help him fall asleep. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can recommend something that is um, a, a good Bible. Sure, sure. Gives good explanation, so it's not too difficult for him to understand. Yep, Catholic Study Bible. It's got good notes. I think that that would probably be the way to go. Catholic Study Bible. Uh, Good notes and uh, uh, a decent translation and uh, not too complex. That would be my recommendation. There you go. Thank you so much. Well, God bless, and I will be praying for your son. That's wonderful that that. Uh, I, would, I would appreciate that. Yeah, that that he's interested. You know that, you know the the apple won't fall that far from the tree. God bless you, Catherine. Let's go to Terry from yeah. Minnesota. Terry, are you with us? Yes, I am. Can you hear me, Father? I can. I can. All the way from Minnesota. What can I do for you? <laughs> My little sister got into the habit of of. Uh, Instead of say, saying goodbye when someone was leaving, she would say, I send my grace with you. But I thought only God had grace that he could give, or Mary. Well, that is an so, odd, odd, uh, well, only, even the Blessed Mother <laughs> uh, only can minister God's grace. That is an interesting thing. I I don't know that, that I can send my grace with anybody. I can bless them. Uh, but yeah. but even then I say, may Almighty God bless you. I don't do it in my own authority. So I, I would kind of think that yeah. her intentions are good. So I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, uh, come down on her too hard on it. But uh, uh, um, well, I, I I did send her a, a copy of the of the uh, catechism because I don't believe the catechism indicated that it. Anyone other than God can bestow grace. Yeah, well, I, I respect well, your opinion. The word so. grace means an unmerited favor. That's what it means. And yes, I can give you an unmerited favor, but my it means a gift. That's all it means. The word chadis in Greek means a, a free gift. She can my free gift goes with you. Well, what's your free gift? Um, I I don't know if if you really look at the words. What what is she saying? And. Uh, uh, you know, it, it would be probably more understandable to say, oh, my prayers go with you. That would be fine. But, you know, I would just say that, that um, her intentions are probably pretty good, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too upset with her. But uh, it is kind of an odd way to look at it. Um, may my unmerited gift go with you. Well, what's your unmerited gift? A couple bucks maybe? So... You know, I think we need to understand the words that we use. I'm big on words, as you know. I hope that helps a little, Terry. It helps a lot. Thanks very much, Father. God bless. Nice to talk to you. All right. God bless. Let's go to John from Phoenix, Arizona. John, are you with us? Yeah. Hi, Father. Yes. Um, That's the way we used to talk back in Chicago, tree guys over there. The tree guys Um, over there, yes. I got a question. Yeah. Uh, the these those them and days the yeah. um, 
But Jesus said many times, any man that divorces his wife and marries another woman is committing adultery. Yes. Um, is that a one-time act? Because I was told that it was in the uh, in a tense that meant that a second marriage was an adulterous relationship. So they were continually committing adultery yeah. as long as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, if 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 a man is married to a woman and she is still alive and uh, uh, there has not been, you know, people talk about annulment as, well, it's just Catholic divorce. No, it's not. It's saying these two people might have had a lovely party, but there was no marriage, that the spiritual bond never was formed, uh, that the the contract at the heart of the, the covenant was not valid. And that that happens when a person doesn't intend to give their spouse the right to have children or doesn't intend to be faithful. Uh, But if you're validly married, you have to stay validly married to the person to whom you're validly married. Uh, You can marry once unless death does your part. So I hope that answers the question, John. And we call it a state of sin. Uh, states of grace and states of sin. And there's the state of Illinois in which Drew will now... (laughs) in which we find Drew, who's just over in the next studio. And don't go anywhere. 